0: This morning, John is going to present arguments. He's going to present arguments specifically about two things. That Jesus really did die. And that he really was buried. And it's really important that you believe those two things. Why? Because if Jesus didn't really, actually, physically die, and he wasn't really actually physically buried, then he wasn't really actually physically resurrected. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. John 19. We're finishing up John 19 this morning. Can you believe we only have two chapters after this? I don't know why everyone laughs when I say things like that. Seriously, I, it's hard to believe, but what a journey it's been through the book. This morning, John is going to do something. Well, he's going to continue to do something, but it's especially clear in this morning's passage that he's been doing that throughout the entirety of the book. He's been defending something. John is an apologetic book, and that does not mean John is sorry about anything, right? It means he is making a defense. This is the word that Peter uses, that you should always be ready to give a reason, the word apologia, for the hope that lies within you. and That's what John does. He's, He's defending something, and you know this. He's defending that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God, and that if you believe in him, you will have Life through his name. And it's especially clear in this morning's passage that John is giving a defense. He wants you to believe something. Maybe if you think about a courtroom scene, evidence is prevented. Maybe you've is presented. There we go. Not prevented. Uh, evidence is presented. On the behalf of whoever, whoever is arguing, maybe you've—how many of you have done the jury duty thing? Wasn't it just the time of your life, right? You go and I did jury duty last year. Last year wasn't—I don't know. It was, I was—I did it recently, and you know you're there all day. It's, the problem was I was the alternate juror. Do you know what that means? You say nothing. You're literally just there. And if someone doesn't show up the next day or whatever, then, you know, then you have a purpose. But it's really kind of useless uh, unless someone doesn't show up, especially if the case is settled in one day, which it was. So I was especially useless. I mean, I didn't even get a lunch for this. I paid for lunch on my own dime. Like, what in the world? I'm just kidding. It's an important thing to do. But if you've served on jury duty, you know what they do. You hear the evidence, and you you make conclusions, and a defense is being made. Maybe even more personal than that, you're having a significant discussion with your spouse. And there's disagreement. And you're defending something. And so you present your argument. Well, that's what John's doing. This morning... John is going to present arguments. And he's going to present arguments specifically about two things. That Jesus really did die. And that he really was buried. And it's really important that you believe those two things. Why? Because if Jesus didn't really, actually, physically die and he wasn't really actually physically buried, then he wasn't really actually physically resurrected. And so John wants us to know this. As a part of the overall, overall argument, he wants us to know that Jesus really did die. We are returning back to, because I think it's best for this passage, we're returning back to the typical style of preaching that I do, where I will give you a point and then I will explain that point. Let's read, we're going to read the entirety of the passage, which we usually do when we do that style of preaching. And so uh, we finished last week, remember where we were last week is uh, Jesus has just taken his final breath. He's just given his spirit up. Jesus has died of his own accord. Remember, he says, no man takes my life from me. He says that back in chapter 7. And so it takes place, truly, it's fulfilled in verse 27, or excuse me, verse 30. When Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So we're going to finish the cross narrative today. Starting in verse 31, we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs, they being those on the cross, might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After this... After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This morning, I want you to see from this passage that because Jesus was truly dead and buried, we can truly live and be raised. Because Jesus was truly, literally, dead and buried, we can truly live and be raised. Let's pray. We'll begin to work through this text together. Father, I thank you for everyone who is here, and and you know exactly why they are here All your people need your truth this morning. Father, I'm thankful for everyone that you've brought here. I'm thankful for the relationships that you've given us here. I'm thankful for the love that is represented strongly in the body of Christ here. But most of all, I'm thankful for the reason that we are all together. And it is the man Christ Jesus, crucified, that has brought us together through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that has unified us as one. Father, there may be with us someone this morning who has not rested in the man Christ Jesus for salvation, and I pray that you would reveal to them that this through the scriptures, which is able to make them wise into salvation, that salvation is in Christ alone. But more than anything, I pray this morning that you would be worshipped. We're not here for ourselves, we're here for you. Give us grace and attention to your word this morning, we ask, through Christ amen. Well, as we discussed last week, this is, or as we began the discussion last week, we are going to conclude Jesus on the cross this morning. We'll give just a few more details about crucifixion because they are relevant to this passage. But I think you see, I'm sure you heard very clearly uh, what I have already said after reading the text, that John is, 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 There's one thing he wants, there's one thing he's trying to do, and that is that he's making an argument. He wants to convince you about the death and the physical death and burial of Jesus Christ. Obviously, he wants to do this for for, uh, first century context reasons. He's attempting, he's writing to make an argument to those who haven't believed yet. And uh, at this point, there wouldn't have been much disagreement about whether or not Jesus did actually die because there were even more people who'd seen him, uh, saw these events took place. And, uh, but he wants you to know that this really is the Christ who died. It, in today's culture, we tend to have the opposite or one of the opposite problems in that some people are attempting to argue away what we see very clearly as historical fact in the Bible and even logical fact and, and, and uh, experiential fact that we read throughout history. There are those today who would obviously say that, that the resurrection didn't actually occur. And so this passage is actually very helpful for us when we talk about the reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen, and you really should believe it. Not primarily just because people saw him after his Death and after his burial. That is a, obviously eyewitness account. It's very important and we see that in the scriptures. John's going to appeal to that even here. But fundamentally, that's not what saves a person. Fundamentally, that's not what changes a person. What saves and changes a person is accepting the truth of Jesus Christ because the Bible says that it is the truth of Jesus Christ. It is coming to Christ on God's terms. By faith. But we understand that even rooted in passages like this, that we have a rational faith, a believable faith. And so this morning is largely an apologetic message, a defensive message. So the first thing I want you to see when we talk about the defense, the argument for Christ's literal death and Christ's literal burial, we find the double defense of his crucifixion a double defense. Paul's going to argue two, Paul. John's going to argue two primary things. That will that he intends to assure you of Christ's death on the cross. Since it was the day of preparation, this is Friday leading up to the high day and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath. They don't want any impurity on the day of Sabbath. They don't want any dead bodies on the day of Sabbath. So they says, take, they say, take them down from the cross. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. But what does that mean? Remember I told you last week that on the cross, primarily there was, there was a primary way that one would die. And it wasn't even just that you'd bleed out first. The primary method of death on the cross was suffocation. They would remove from you the opportunity to breathe. Because of the way that the individual hung on the cross, they would have to lift themselves up on the nails that were through their wrists with every breath that they took. So the method of breaking the individual's legs removed the opportunity for this even further. They could no longer push up with their legs. So some sort of mallet or hammer was taken, and the legs would be broken so that it would hasten death. So the Jews asked that this takes place. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and the other, remember, Jesus is crucified around sinners. This is to fulfill prophecy, or in the middle of sinners. This is to fulfill prophecy Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And this is the first defense that I want you to see from this passage. The first defense that we see in this passage about Christ's crucifixion is scriptural support. This is backed by the Bible. And John says this, but look with me at verse, we just saw verse 31. Uh, verse, excuse me, verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. Obviously, this continues to be a, a gory and, and difficult thing to think about and seen to witness, But this exact thing, these exact events that Jesus has already died before his legs would be broken and that he'd be pierced with a spear, take place to do something that John has been doing throughout the entirety of this narrative, the entirety of his account of the crucifixion. Jesus fulfills the Bible. And you should believe that he is the Christ, because the Bible, or at least these passages that John uses, are about him. He says this in verse 37, or verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 34, 20, and Exodus 12, 46 point us to the fulfillment of the unbroken bones of Jesus Christ, verse Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his broken bones, not one of them is broken. This is another reason Jesus gives up his spirit when he does, so that there is no need for his legs to be broken, so that he fulfills the scriptures he knows are important for him to fulfill, necessary for him to fulfill. Exodus 12.46, it shall be eaten in in one house. This is the, the observation, the celebration of the Jewish feast of the Passover. The it is the lamb. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. John has mentioned Passover a lot not just because it gives us a timeline for the event, but because there are clear themes that John wants us to connect to the person of Jesus Christ. And this is another of them. Jesus is the spotless, flawless lamb. There is nothing wrong with him. There is no issue with him. He is pure and unblemished, and he must be. Because you are not, and I am not, Everything that is wrong with me, every imperfection, every flaw due to the fall of sin, the sin that is a state of being and the sin that I follow after because I'm a sinful person apart from Jesus Christ and so are you, that is not applied to Jesus Christ because he alone is the righteous and pure one but rather at the the imputation of his righteousness, his goodness and purity is, is, is given to us, is placed upon us, so that our imperfection he takes in himself on the cross, and his perfection and righteousness he applies to us. The perfection of the Passover lamb is not just a stipulation that God gives in the Old Testament that the lamb must be unblemished. It is a standard that God gives. They have to be perfect. And Jesus Christ was. And in the fulfillment of that not one of his bones would be broken. He proves, as John begins the book, by pointing us to the other John, John the Baptist, that when Jesus arrives on the scene, what are John the Baptist's words? He's He's here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He doesn't just symbolize as the Old Testament lamb that sin could be taken away. That redemption might or will or future orientation possibly take place. That there's a possibility, but through Jesus Christ, it proves that redemption is realized. Because he's the spotless lamb of God who takes away sin. And you may be with us this morning. And you're still struggling with the sin of Adam that has ruined mankind. The sin that now you follow after, that you pursue. Christ, the man Christ Jesus dies on the cross. And I'm just going to use the terminology because I think it's beautiful and I think it's simple. What does he do with everything that's wrong with us? He takes it away. It's gone. I yell at my wife. It's sin. Stop. Jesus can take that away I can't quit looking at this on the internet it's sin Jesus can take it away I'm having a hard time listening or trusting him and so so I make my own decisions I don't want to follow him husband it's sin Jesus can take it away. Teenager. I want my own life. I want to do things my own way. It's sin. Jesus can take it away. You don't know what I did. You don't know what I did. I'm the only person who knows what I did. Because if anyone else knew, I would just want to hide for the rest of my life. Jesus can take it away. Because he is the Lamb of God who doesn't symbolize the removal of sin. He accomplishes the removal of sin. The second scriptural support that we see in the passage, the passage is very, if you're an OCD person, the outline is perfect. I mean, Paul, Paul why don't keep doing that? John just goes through and he just keeps giving two defenses and then two defenses under those two defenses. The second scriptural support that we see here is the piercing of the spear. And again, verse 37, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants, this is God speaking, of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. The plunging of the spear is not just functional to prove something. Then the Jews think it is. They think they're just testing to see whether Jesus has actually died. But God is proving that through this piercing of the spear, this is the man, Christ Jesus, and you need to believe in him, for there's no hope otherwise. Revelation 1.7, it was read earlier, Behold, he is coming with, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Those who slayed Christ, those who plunged the spirit so that blood and water... Now, if you're a doctor, you know that when, when oxygen is lacking in the heart, sometimes water, water begins to form or take, to, to, to fill around the heart and lungs. So another thing John is doing here is pointing out that Jesus died like a human because he's a human body. His human body is functioning like a human body functions. And he will die like a human body does. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. Because he was pierced and died. You go forth and live. And then John does something so fascinating. He has not done this very often. He's really only done this two other times in the book. He takes a step back, and he reminds us that he's writing it. That this was written by a person so now he, he zooms out of the narrative, he zooms out of the story a little bit. Look what he says with, look, look with me at, verse, what he's, at what he says in verse 35. "He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he, Jesus, is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's like John is saying, "Look, here's the Bible." Here's the reason you should believe that he is the Christ. But here's another reason: I saw it with my eyes. I witnessed this, and we know John witnessed this. Remember, because he was here. He was here last week in the passage when he, when John, when Jesus transfer his transfers his, the care of his mother into John's life. Look with me at verse. Uh, uh, look with me at verse. 30 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. John says, I know this. I saw this. I was the one that Jesus said, Take care of my mother when I die. Now, there would be many more witnesses than John. And this is testified of the, in, in the Acts. But John says you should believe because of the Bible, and you should believe because I saw it. And in typical John fashion, what is the primary concern of him stating that he was an eyewitness? That you may believe. You must believe. You get the point by now. This is what the book is about that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. So you should really believe that Jesus really died with a real body on a real cross. Because the Scriptures tell us, and because one of the writers of the Scriptures tells us he was there and he saw it. Now, I told you that this is a a pretty straightforward outline, and it is. John gives two reasons for two things. So we have a second double defense. So the first is the double defense of his crucifixion. And secondly, we find a double defense of Christ after the cross. A double defense of Christ after the cross. What takes place after the cross? what takes place when the unbroken body of Jesus Christ is removed from the cross? Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So, the first defense of Christ's true death and burial is the body of Jesus. John spend some time drawing our attention to Jesus' body. And he does this by saying it was a body that was prepared for death. So Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly uh, for fear of the Jews. Now, it would be easy to, uh, I don't know, pick on Joseph a little bit. Well, he's just fearful. He needs to be a confident follower. Um, Remember what the Jews just did to Jesus. And they want to do it to anyone who follows Jesus. They want to eradicate any memory or thought of Jesus Christ. So I don't think Joseph is the only one who, here, the only disciple of Jesus here who is, who's fearful to express his devotion publicly. I, I think probably the, he eventually does. That's how the Christians are known after the crucifixion. But he goes and he asks Pilate. Now remember, Pilate up to this point has actually been a little bit sympathetic towards the cause of Christ. He tried, to get, he tried to get Jesus off a few times. And then we're not going to go all the way back through that, but uh, we see his continued empathy or sympathy here. He asked Pilate he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So a disciple of Jesus comes and he asks for the body of Jesus, and Pilate honors that wish. So he came away and took away his body. Nicodemus also. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Did you catch that? Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, who had earlier come to Jesus. I love this so much. John is, you've seen this already. John is a masterful storyteller. And he wants you to know there is resolution to a story that has already been told. And so he uses the exact same terminology here that he used to introduce Nicodemus back in chapter 3. And a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Now he doesn't just say Nicodemus here. He says, Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. He wants you to know this is the same guy. Remember what Jesus said to him? You must be born again. Now, I don't have any proof, but I think, we got, I think we got some biblical optimism here that Nicodemus was born again, that he obeyed Christ's command, you must be born again. And I think he was regenerated by the Spirit. The reason I think that is because this would have been unheard of for someone who was still in the pocket of of the Jewish leadership. That he goes with the disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, and he himself embalms and honors the body. So, verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Uh, he didn't pull out any of the stops. Nicodemus, honored the body of Jesus Christ. I love this so much. When you look at the life of Nicodemus contrasted to the next chapter. So ne- chapter 3 is Nicodemus, chapter 4, do you remember? Is the woman at the well. The religious elite, the social outcast, One thing that John resolves by reminding us about Nicodemus is that Jesus saves anybody. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Even if you just looked quickly at the passage, you'd note how many times John intentionally uses the word body. And then we have the honoring of the body with the embalming. He draws attention to the account of what takes place with Jesus' body because he wants you to know Jesus really had one, and it really died. Now, there's lots of bad theology about this. If you study theology, there's lots of bad theology about Jesus was just a spirit and he would take upon himself a human form or Jesus fell asleep at the cross and then woke up. And there's a lot of bad theology about Jesus having an actual body. So this is important stuff to know. It's not just, well, yeah, this theology has been argued and they've attempted to explain it away from the third, second century on. It's important that we know this. Because if Jesus doesn't have a body, he can't save yours. And he does not, Philippians 2, take upon himself the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. If he doesn't do that, then he can't, Philippians 3, redeem us from our vile body and make us like his glorious one. So you should be really thankful Jesus had a body. The second second defense is Jesus' burial. Now in the place he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid, which fulfills for us Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 42 of chapter 19. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was at a close, excuse me, was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. His body was wrapped and placed in a tomb. The creator of the earth, was now in it. He who formed and calculated the chemical processes and necessities for oxygen now lays in the dust and dirt of the earth from which he made man and does not breathe. you need to believe that Jesus truly died because he truly had a body and he was truly buried. This, these three things, or that he was truly raised, these three things are very important to one man in particular in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which, if you remember 1 Corinthians 15, it's, the, it's probably the most extensive doctrinal treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament. This is how it begins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance. This is a big deal. What, you, what I also received... That Christ, listen, died for our sins in according to the Scriptures. Died for our sins to fulfill the Bible, was buried in accordance with the Scriptures, and was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. This is why you must believe because he was truly dead and buried, and only through his true death and his true burial, because he had a true body, can we live and be raised. But what's the one condition? You must believe. And you must accept all of it. There is no partial belief here that Jesus died in spirit or that temporarily something weird happened on the cross and he wasn't actually human anymore you must accept all of this that he did not fall asleep on the cross and woke up and you must accept all of what the New Testament says that he was a man with a body like a man And that he died like a man, and that he was buried like a man, and that he was raised. Not like most men. Because you will die in your sins if you don't. You must believe. Sometimes it's easy when we talk about the beauty of the resurrection to just focus on the second part, that he was raised. But let us not fail in rejoicing about the horrible but joyful reality that he died, that he was buried, Because he died and was buried, we can live and be raised.